Hello and welcome to CAA Conversations. Today I'm here with Susanna Crum and Julia Lilly. Susanna Crum is an artist and educator in Louisville, Kentucky, where she teaches printmaking as an assistant professor at Indiana University Southeast and at Calliope Arts, a shared print media workspace she co-founded in 2015. She is president of the Mid-America Print Council and just spent a month fishing and conducting a research-based mapping project in the small town of Olvik, Norway. Julia Lilly is a PhD candidate at the Bard Graduate Center in New York, where she studies early modern European print culture. She is currently based in Auburn, Alabama, and is at work on her dissertation, which investigates a network of exiled Protestant engravers active in the Catholic city of Cologne in the late 16th century. She was previously a collections manager in the Department of Drawings and Prints at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Today, they'll be discussing mapping and print, perspectives from contemporary art and art history. Hi, um, well, this is Julia. Um, I'll just tell you who we are for another minute. Um, so Susanna and I, we're an artist and art historian who share research interests in concepts around mapping um, throughout time. And we both look at how maps intersect with the social impact and technologies of printmaking. So this can include issues of access, um, like price, format, audience, um, and also the authority of the medium, meaning sort of the development of the print medium being a true depiction um, of something that's capable of, of mass dissemination. And this is Susanna. So Julia and I, we approach these subjects from different angles, which we found gives us both better insight into our work, makes us question our assumptions or open new questions about our research topics. We also have a shared interest in investigating the printmaking studio as a shared place of learning and kind of the nature of printmakers as inherently collaborative, as can be seen from the earliest print shops to the present day. Yeah, so on that topic, I'll just tell you what I've been working on. Um, so I'm writing my dissertation currently. Um, it's about a network of exiled Protestant Netherlandish engravers, uh, mouthful, um, who were active in the Catholic city of Cologne, Germany, in the late 16th century. Um, so these were artists who were fleeing religious persecution in their homeland and ended up in Cologne. Um, so I, I focus on an engraver and author named Matthias Quad, who is really not a very known character, but um, at the time he was known for his maps and atlases um, that often included descriptive text in German, um, which was slightly unusual for the time as most kind of learned texts were in Latin. So in this work, I argue that um, Quad and others around him contributed to the wider knowledge of both European and global geography for non-elite um, German-speaking readers um, in, you know, in the 16th century. Um, so Susanna, tell us what you're working on. Yeah, so I think I would... I think about my practice as research-based. I've always been really interested in maps as an intersection of place and time and kind of the privileged perspective, point of view, 
that is embedded in that mapping practice. So I'm looking often in my research to printed ephemera, like maps, advertisements, posters, for ways that places have been represented over time and print media's roles in maintaining relationships and erasures between people and place. So definitely looking at woodcuts, metal engravings, lithographs, um, all that printed language that at the seat really of graphic design um, could commercially be produced and shared. My latest watershed globe project uh, is a globe of a single place. It's the um, kind of Ohio River watershed region in which I live, looking at the shrinking vision of the Ohio River itself in maps from the 1790s to today. The interpretations of, the, of these maps take many forms. I start out with digital drawings, translate it to a flat map, use software to make a globe, with centuries-old <laughs> techniques. It's all these different kind of layers, and then finally video animations of the maps over time. It's so great. I, I love that you that you approach, you know, your idea that maps represent time, or place throughout time, that they're like a type of object that can communicate both of those things when you look at a development of many different objects. Um, Thank you. So wait, so how do you, um, you were saying that, how do you make the globes? I wanted to ask you that. The globes, um, you know, I've been looking at these, you know, 300, 400 year old treatises by globe wow. makers. Um, and then I also look at, you know, Instagram. I have uh, new social media friends in Germany and England <laughs> also making globes. They're cast plaster um, primarily, and then plaster is a really nice absorbent surface to attach um, prints on paper. So I've made so far globes with cyanotype imagery. So it's literally the blueprint process that was popular in 20th century urban planning and art architecture. Um, but I'm also, I'm working on plans for an engraved um, map globe right. so right. for your the, the time period that you're um, looking at in terms of map language yeah totally I mean that's from the the globes that I've seen from from the 16th century that that they are using like basically a, a plaster around usually like a wooden core um, mm -hmm. and then yeah and then overlaying with with prints um, sometimes hand painted but um, those are the really really fancy ones um, but yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. And owned by only a very particular segment of the population, too. Yeah, for sure, They're, for sure. These objects of privilege and power, they were almost like yeah. furniture at the right. same time. They were political statements. Right. They were out of print almost as soon as they were printed. They were like, <laughs> not out of print, but like uh, out of date. Not as relevant, yeah, yeah. Would change, politics would change, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. so interesting. So I think I, I was really drawn to the work that you do and um, your particular research area and that we're looking to printed maps, particularly because of their potential for mass dissemination, their impact mm -hmm. for creating and spreading geographic knowledge. And yeah. the idea, of course, that knowledge is not a fixed thing. It's actively created and right. undergoes change over time. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I was just 
reading an amazing essay in this incredible multi-volume uh, history of cartography that I want to plug for anybody that's interested. The entire uh, multi-volume set is free online in PDFs through uh, UChicago. Um, and I just have like, there's a short quote of um, uh, Patrick Dalshe, one of these authors who says, a map is a depiction based on a problematic, arbitrary and malleable convention which I think just like is a really great succinct um, assessment of like a lot of the like issues that we're thinking about with, um, with maps and society. Um, yeah. And in terms of, of my work, like um, I was, I was drawn to the period because print is exploding in the 16th century. And there's, it's also at the time of, um, major developments in global travel um, and, you know, obviously the uh, colonialism that follows that, um, but that print is allowing for this, a greater shared knowledge of world geography. Um, and in my context, I'm looking at a European context. Um, but, you know, in the fact that people were often looking at, um, you know, a pictorial map of a fragment of a place, um, say for uh, maps of, of the Americas, um, viewers in Germany would generally be looking at like uh, a map that was a, a very small section of, uh, of South America um, that's based on um, Spanish commissions from you know several steps removed, um, and that that would have uh, influenced like their impression and their view of the world. Um, so yeah, I mean as I like, it's it's interesting that Germany was not really a colonial power at the time. Um, so German viewers are really learning about what uh, the the greater powers like Span like Spain and Portugal what they owned or not owned, but um, what they were claiming. Well, um, according to the maps, it was an ownership. Right, yeah, I mean, these places are labeled as New Spain and you see the German text describing them as New Spain and that's just what they are. Um, yeah. So that the, the creation of that kind of knowledge that is very um, dependent on, as you said, um, you know, power dynamics. Um, yeah, and it seems like in your work as well, like you look at how maps are uh, have arguments, Is that right? Yeah, definitely. So I think that um, w something that's really interesting, you know, like a lot of people may not know, but they have seen like Ortelius and Mercator's Atlas. Mm -hmm. Quick plug for the Newberry Library. I think we nice. were there recently, you know, being able to see. Um, that material in person. Um, and when you look at these atlases, um, they were beautifully bound. You could get deluxe versions. We talked about that um, mm -hmm. earlier, these beautifully uh, rendered and then hand colored sometimes engravings. Uh, and so when we look at maps on a screen or on our phone, they don't seem as special mm -hmm. or as uh, you know, made by a single person, 
we don't think about. But increasingly, this is happening where with increased accessibility of the web and better graphics processors, maps are getting much more detailed and um, they are like much more open to interpretation and participation. Mm -hmm. And so something like OpenStreetMaps, for example, is now the Wikipedia of maps. People can participate and be part of it. They provide more inclusive solutions uh, as to like mapping places that, not just places that have a Starbucks, for example, <laughs> which I think some OpenStreetMap people have said the Starbucks test or principle. Um, Google Maps, for example, shows you places that have places to spend money. Right. So yeah. one term that I use with my research-based practice is a trans-historical approach. So what I mean by that is using digital and analog printmaking solutions. So those will be, you know, digital printing, CNC work, laser cut, um, and then these centuries-old print techniques to overlay old and new. So representations of place from centuries ago with images from Google Satellite. So, so yeah, um, well, I think what's really interesting about what you were just talking about is that for both of us, for both of the, the research that we're doing, we're, we're looking at ways in which geographical data and other kinds of data is crowdsourced, both during the 16th century and, and now with your discussion of, of the open street maps, um, as, yeah, we were discussing how Ortelius, um, Abraham Ortelius, who was a Flemish um, book dealer and became kind of a geographer and scholar. Um, he created what's what's generally thought of as the first modern atlas um, in terms of format and and convention. And he he requested contacts of his throughout Europe to for them to send him uh, map drawings that he could then. Um, have translated into engraving and compiled in one volume together as an atlas. Um, so each map would have a text description as well. Um, but th this is an interesting like early instance of something we would today call crowdsourcing, although it's it's slightly problematic because you know we're still looking at a fairly elite network. Um, so maybe not as equitably crowdsourced as perhaps OpenStreetMaps is today. Um, but maybe, I don't know, maybe you can tell us more about that program. Like, can anyone put in any location? Yeah, so my understanding, and I have not become a contributor yet to OpenStreetMaps, but you can become a contributor um, by placing a location on the map. So there are, um, you know, org like organizations, NGOs working together, especially like for crisis mapping. So, for mm. example, um, there's a natural disaster that happens in an area that doesn't have, you know, mapped roads. But mm -hmm. you have to figure out how to get in and out of a place. Um, that's something, of course, uh, I think about archives, the relationship to historical archives. Something, a history or documentation only really happens at a, at a crisis point, at a, a point of acuity where action needs to be taken and things are organized. Um, I think that is part of uh, the OpenStreetMaps kind of MO. Um, people have OpenStreetMapping like parties. I think this started oh. like more a, a few years ago, but definitely with like you'd think about Wikipedia editing get togethers, mm -hmm. 
people at least used to have, like, I remember several years ago, you know, you'd get together and like correct or add annotations to knowledge. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. but I, you know, we're at this really interesting time of uh, kind of similar to the 16th century in some way, <laughs> where information can be copied and contributed to and posted again and again, and we're all kind of recipients of this telephone game with information. <laughs> <laughs> so we're right. like, we need to be conscious consumers at, at like one end or the right. other, whether it's whatever kind of mapping um, software you're looking at. And then mm -hmm. also this idea, and I think you were telling me about these little maps um, that would be purchased by uh, not extremely wealthy individuals, people who have some kind of money, but right. to sit around with them in their pockets or kind of on the go. And yeah. the virtualization yeah. that happens of your environment, kind of like when we're, you know, navigating a city while looking at our iPhones, right. that shift in the perception of space, maybe? Mm -hmm. Is that something yeah. that, yeah, is that something that you're thinking about too? Yeah, it is definitely. Um, it's something I've been wondering about as I as I look at primary sources um, from the early modern period, and you know, a lot of the ones I'm that I've been looking at recently, like you say, are are guidebooks with very small etchings or engravings that are accompanied by um, letterpress text that describe itineraries that one can take um, to go from you know a village in what's now Austria to Rome or, you know, throughout Europe. Um, and so the mileage is given for each of the stops along the way to one's destination. Wow. And it's great. Yeah. I mean, to have, I think the big thing that's interesting to me there is that seemingly for the first time, like you would have an image alongside that information. So mm -hmm. you would be able to link potentially, you know, in your mind, like what is, what is two miles? Like, what does that look like in relation to a much, much bigger space um, that's depicted in the map? And yet the map is still really small. Like, I think you're just having to make adjustments. It's, it's impossible to know, you know, what, what people at the time were thinking um, when they like encountered this new format, but it's especially important since it was a lot more accessible than um, like the Ortelius atlases that we were talking about, which are really luxury objects. And so something, yeah, and that makes me think about, you know, where they were getting these images, the, the map makers, printers that you're, that you're looking at, um, and how much they may have relied on old sources. And sometimes they're really old sources, right? Right. <laughs> right. Well, um, yeah, I mean, Ptolemy is is the kind of go-to source during the Renaissance. So he, you know, he was an Egyptian, um, I think 200 AD, I want to say, I might have that wrong, um, who during the Renaissance was held up as, um, you know, the, the top source for geography. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a really interesting history of how that happened, how humanists who were dedicated to the superiority of Greek and Roman scholarship um, decided that Ptolemy was the authority. Um, and then <laughs> once he was established as such, it was really hard for 
for people to let let him go. Um, so a lot of the maps that I'm looking at are are based on interpretations of Ptolemy that through print editions that came out started in around 1400, um, but they were really hard to shake. Um, and I think it kind of points to what can be a weakness in printmaking sometimes in terms of the medium um, being at, at least during the early modern period um, being a little bit slow to uh, shake off convention um, but I, that may just be a larger cultural trend of the time so people were reluctant to give up Ptolemy's authority until you know, Europeans realized that there was a Western hemisphere and there was a major conflict there because Ptolemy does not account for that. He, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, he puts out the three continents of the world as Europe, Asia, and Africa. Um, so, the, you know, then there's this major rupture, but still people kind of give, give, uh, pay their, pay their respects basically to Ptolemy until eventually um, his, his, you know, trickled down text get kind of filtered out um, and the maps get more updated. Um, but, you know, the people that I'm looking at were, uh, the artists were, were still looking to sources like that. Um, and it's an interesting, interesting moment. They're kind of, they're trying to figure out, um, you know, they, they, they often want to be the most up to date and the most uh, the most informed um, because that sells books and sells maps. Um, but there's a little bit of a, of a, of some slippage of, well, what, what do they really know? The engravers who are copying other prints. Um, so that's something I'm thinking about a lot. Um, yeah. And, you know, to go along with that, like, what are the decisions they're making about what's included and not included in the map? And, and how do those choices then communicate different goals um, from, you know, from the maker? Um, does that relate to to what you're doing in some way? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's strange to be, you know, to have gotten used to um, like Google Maps, for example, or even MapQuest, you know, in early driving. But Google Maps up until like this spring, I believe, was using the 1569 Mercator projection. Right. Oh my God. That's crazy. For its structure. You so I, you know, if I give a slide talk about my work, I have a little animation that, you know, super superimposes April 2019 <laughs> Google Maps on top of uh, the Mercator. And uh, Mercator, of course, being one of these great printer scholar cartographers that we're talking yeah. about so in the mid 16th century. And, you know, I think people, I, I feel that that stickiness that you're talking about, because mm -hmm. we have a contract as viewers and consumers of information um, that things should look a particular way. Um, so looking at, you know, medieval Muslim maps, like or maps from the Islamic world that had, did not have north at the top. Right. As east, yeah. was the, that was their priority and perspective. Yeah. Um, in the Watershed Globe project, um, my most recent cyanotype globe, I mentioned the changing scale of the Ohio River over time. As transportation and economic forces relied less on the river, 
the area got railroads and then highways, the representation of the river changes. But the the river was the reason why humanity, you know, was there in in the first place. Um, I love that know. idea. That so it's you're seeing the visualization of the river change as you've done research on these on maps of that area. Is that right? Yeah. So in my in my work, I'm I'm superimposing like 18 or 20 maps starting in the 1790s all the way up to a, a Google map and um, seeing where they overlay. And so I'm aided by a lot, of, a lot of software and digital drawing in this process, but I'm really interested, you know, from the outside, outside of a project saying, I'm just gonna look at 230 years of maps, 220, and see what happens. <laughs> and then it'll always show you something because perspectives change. And then I think about, you know, that. so how much did you see changes in the landscapes of what you're looking at? Um, yeah, landscape is, is the, the intersection of landscape and map making is super interesting. Um, and especially with like the beginning of printmaking as more of a sophisticated artistic medium that was, um, that was taking on landscape as a subject. Um, in the maps that I have been researching, it's surprising that landscape is and topography are actually pretty minimal elements. Um, like you see, you see rivers um, and you see very conventionalized descriptions of forests or trees or mountains that are all just like the same little little hump or the same little cluster to to kind of denote a tree. Or, or a natural area. Um, but I think it speaks to, at the time, uh, you know, what, what was important then was civic identity. Because the main, the main impression that, that I have when I look at these maps, and I think many other people would too, they are covered in text. And the text is place names. And it drills down to villages, um, down to really small you know, settlements, um, place names were extremely important. And that was also from classical precedents, um, the listing of place names um, as kind of as knowledge of knowledge of, of the world, of what's out there. Um, but, you know, it, it's funny because you would, you would look at, at a 16th century map and not necessarily know how you were gonna navigate an area um, if you're, if all you're looking at is the place names, um, but I, yeah, I wonder if, um, that may reflect the fact that images at that time still were not really the standard way to take in that kind of information and that there would have been more of a reliance on spoken communication and sort of tacit knowledge and experience. Um, so I, I mean, just thinking back to your to your Google Maps um, points, you know, we were talking about how when you have Google Maps, you kind of forget that that knowledge that you have of a place. You know, you may like only pay attention to the, the locations that pop up and forget that oh, you've been there and you actually you have a mental picture of it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think just point of view in in map making is, is super interesting. Um, and there's so many different uses for the ones that I'm looking at. Like some 
were guidebooks, which would be really for practical use. Some were for um, to communicate a really distinct religious message. Um, for example, I've seen a lot of maps of the Holy Land. There was a whole field of biblical geography of an attempt to map the areas that are described in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have, you know, where we're talking about with the globes, objects that are made specifically for elite collecting and sort of fetishizing this high quality desirable object. Um, and the, the group that I'm looking at um, that's, that's active in Cologne, you have both Protestants uh, and Catholic, usually Protestant engravers and Catholic publishers who are working together to make maps. Um, and it's interesting to think of geography as sort of, in that context, I think it was a kind of a safe subject area for people of different religious faiths at a time when, you know, still fallout from the Reformation is happening. There are a lot of tensions um, in Germany and yes. geography could be sort of a neutral subject. Yeah, I mean, I think that's happening now too. So they may yeah. be such a, you know, maps may be such a battleground and you can see all these uh, contested point of views or um, ownership and, and power and politics mm -hmm. associated with that. But also, you know, there are examples of, um, you know, maps being used as a catalyst for storytelling, especially about a local place or a particular place. I think about um, San Francisco recently kind of found um, a model, a scaled model from the 1940s, which is huge, 37 feet by 41 feet. I think it was stored at UC Berkeley in boxes. And it is this perfect scaled model. If your house was there in San Francisco before 1940, your house is in the model. And so they took car, is my understanding, and they put it in 27 libraries for community discussions on gentrification and history and growth. And I think that there's so much potential there for a map or a globe or a model to be a tool for talking about a place, maybe even recording oral histories, enriching conversations among community members, um, because you are kind of ab above, you know, the place. You're you're separated from it in a in a way that hmm. you have this neutral effect. Um, of course, you know, also you're physically separated in a bird's eye view. So there's a, a greater than kind of thing happening. But um, to be surrounding or like kind of to, having a social viewing with other people of a map and needing to talk about it and point to places is something really exciting. And I, I hope to um, I'm actually looking now for opportunities to do that um, with community organizations, um, historical societies, uh, ways to have conversations about the present by looking at old maps models. Yeah. Yeah, that's so that's so fascinating. I love that that whole field of inquiry on your part. And you know, maybe there's something about looking back, like you said, that makes it easier to discuss these kinds of things. Um, you know, if you yeah. if you remove someone from the current moment and sort of make it easier to comment in retrospect. Yeah, definitely. And kind of like remaking a map together. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, a lot of the 
you know, the books that, that survive now from, from early modern Europe that contain maps are, um, they, they lead us to think that books were the main mode of, of representation and intake for this kind of information at the time, but wall maps were yeah. just as, uh, were just as, as prevalent, but they survive less for obvious reasons. Um, mm-hmm. But that too would have been a more social viewing, right? To have like a 12 sheet map printed from numerous blocks. Yeah. Uh, perhaps like up in a, in a tavern or a public space. Um, it would have engendered that kind of social, um, you know, commentary and, and maybe shared memory at that time too. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah and, I, and that doesn't happen as much now that, you know, maps are screen-based and right. they're, we may all be looking at a map, but we're not looking at it together. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, yeah, if we're like kind of losing out on opportunities mm-hmm. there to to look at spaces together and kind of negotiate those right. um, as a group. And I think, you know, that's, I think a lot about, you know, how this relates to kind of my drive personally as a, as a printmaker and the, like an artist and printmaker people, you know, it's printmaking gets its own, you know, world sometimes. Um, right. And, and that's good and bad. You know, we're inherently collaborative people. We need shared studios. And I, I love hearing from you about what that was like. These shared studios like, are not a new thing. Right. Yeah. Well, the, the early modern print shop is, you know, it's often described by art historians and cultural historians as this, like, really groundbreaking site for collaboration and for exploration of new knowledge, um, you know, because the rise of really sophisticated engraving workshops and the rise of the role of the publisher coincided with, um, you know, a rise in increased, uh, you know, curiosity, uh, discoveries having to do with not just geography, but anatomy, um, engineering, just countless things. Um, if anyone saw the power of prints at the Met, um, I guess a couple of years ago now, mm-hmm. they had a beautiful array of very early printed books that were each describing like a different um, sort of scientific uh, subject that was new at the time. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I mean, the the publisher would have been the the leader of um, of, of a print shop at that time, they would have owned the presses and the plates, and they would have been um, employing engravers, draftsmen, editors, authors, typesetters, the printers, the inkers, so many different roles, so many different people under one roof. Yeah. Um, and then you have, you know, a patron or a funder as well who might come into the, come, come into the group. And I think what, what, makes me love this period so much sort of beginning around 1550 um, is the fact that um, there's an exchange of knowledge going on in that space. And um, there's this idea that being a scholar printmaker is something to be, to be desired. Um, It's sort of a precedent that's set by Durer who famously, you know, was 
an incredible printmaker, but also wrote um, three books on measurement, three books on human proportion. So he like sets out this this ideal that's still, I think, being sought after. So I don't, yeah, do you want to speak to any of your experience and collaboration? Wonder. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this what so 1550-ish. Um, what that's 450 years later <laughs> in human history. <laughs> Uh, there are still a lot of shared print studios, and um, I founded one, Calliope Arts, with my partner Rudy Salgado um, back in 2015 in our home, Louisville, Kentucky, and um, I just feel in many ways that artists are encouraged, whether it's by schools, grant programs, art institutions, to work individually and seek out opportunities individually. And we just mm -hmm. don't learn as much from each other this way. It, I think we're much stronger um, crossing what other kind of, you know, you were talking about religious boundaries, but we, we're we in a time of a lot of boundaries and a lot of polarization. Mm -hmm. And I know that maybe this sounds like idealistic or whatever, but, you know, printmaking presses, equipment are heavy, expensive. Artists often don't have a lot of money. They need creative spaces to make the work they want to make. Um, and so with Calliope, we've done some publishing and collaborative projects with other artists, uh, taught classes within the community, advise artists on their projects. So quite a bit of, um, you know, knowledge sharing. And then also just been like a, a first landing pad for artists just moving to Louisville and wanting to kind of get the lay of the land. Um, maybe they're writers in some cases and musicians or painters. Um, but having a, a place where people are welcome to have conversations. And of course we're a small shop because there's not a huge print scene yet. It's definitely growing. Um, but this, I'm glad to be part of this historical continuity. Uh, if you want to look at it that way, Yeah. that, you know, we're working with this old equipment and new, um, like I mentioned the CNC and, uh, we just did a laser cut publishing project, for example, like with woodcuts that were made with the computer. So, you know, even Amazing. if technology's changing, there is this collaboration. Um, and that's, I'm, I'm yeah. so glad to be helping that happen. I think as part of my artistic practice, it's a really mm -hmm. important part. Yeah, it's really interesting, just the practical factors that contribute to that. You know, like you said, like the presses are extremely heavy they're expensive, you have, it, it makes more sense to share. Um, yeah. And I, I think printmakers have always been taking on the latest technology, like from the very beginning, you know, like engraved armor becomes imagery, um, you know, so we're taking on all sorts of, you know, digital technology now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just, it's all part of that continuity, I think. Totally. Do you, and, do you think that the, the impetus or, or the encouragement that you feel um, that artists are pushed to work individually, do you think that's because of the academic context that like you are, you know, trying to make tenure or kind of get to the next level in an academic context and that's that's part of, of that kind of um, that structure or or do you think that's just, it's more generalized? 
Well, I'm always trying to look at artists who aren't in the academic institution too. I, I think it's it's best for me um, at this point because of my research based practice. But I think in academia or in the you know outside real world, uh, whichever you want, uh, there's so much competition, and there's so so many artists and creative practitioners and we're told so few opportunities mm -hmm. and you know collectors and collections keep getting more and more um elite or blue chip or you know separated especially when you live in flyover country which i say with quotations around it so not living in new york or la or san francisco even um, artists have to make their own opportunities and to do that you have to really like examine the assets in your community and work together. And I think that we're not like, that's not the narrative that I experienced until, you know, recent, recent years. Mm, that's um, interesting. Like it wasn't part of your education as an artist that you would need to be doing that type of thing. No, because, you know, yeah. especially in undergrad, you're focusing on your creative voice and being unique, which is kind of like the opposite mm -hmm. of what you're, the <laughs> printers colors totally. the 16th century were doing i think they were like right yeah, yeah they're, they're they're trying yeah. to be as conventional as possible in some okay. ways <laughs> yeah so i mean that's where they really you know it diverges but we have to think about um like thinking about a community and i'm really interested in what you were telling me the other day about um, kind of these first person experiences for the, the printers that you mm -hmm. are studying, how they're sharing their experiences, even though it's supposed to be an anonymous map, you know, <laughs> a transmitter of knowledge, but they're telling you what they think. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those nuggets of first person description are, are really fun to find because yeah, they, they make, they make a really distant historical period seem a lot more human. Um, so like the, the main engraver who I work on called Matthias Quad, he, he publishes several atlases um, and a lot of the texts are kind of recycled as in the texts that describe the maps. Um, but he, he was actually somewhat of a traveler himself. And so for the places that he had been to personally, he, takes the opportunity to weave in some of his own description. So pertinent to your recent residency, he, he also went to Norway. And so one of his quotes on Norway is, the sea stretches deeply through the land as streets through a city. So most routes are entirely on water. So he's sort of describing this for the benefit of somebody who might go there um, to kind of maybe plan ahead. Um, but I love that. I love that description. Um, and he also describes the Norwegian people. He says the people here are somewhat more hospitable than we Germans and other European nations. One often not so humble demands to give accommodation to welcome someone while through Germany, one just consumes his money. So he's saying that the, the friendly Norwegians who, uh, you know, are not necessarily down and out um, offered to put someone up who they don't know while in Germany, you know, they would be charged. You would be charged for that charge money. Yeah. Um, a little self-deprecating. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's, it's an opportunity to 
you know, travel is always an opportunity to learn about a new place and then to compare it to where you're from, to what's familiar to you. And it's just great that that process is happening in, in, in this description from 1600. Um, and it's, it's, you know, as I was talking about civic identity being really important, you know, the Renaissance is also a time of, um, of expanding, uh, a sense of identity, um, and, and, uh, forming an idea about one's own community based on often based on print sources like costume books and and maps and all these types of things we're talking about um so yeah i mean i love your um your attention to uh to point of view in in that way um yeah thank you yeah i, th I think that being aware of that is so important and then also um looking for places where it, it the people kind of betray themselves in some way or show like where they're coming from despite the standardization uh of the of the tool or the product that they're trying to make um i think something so we were just talking about this you know the uh, blanton museum of art in austin texas and i haven't been able to see this show yet but they're having an exhibition this summer, Mapping Memory, Space and History in 16th Century Mexico. Um, this is such an interesting example of looking to another point of view. So like in the 1580s, uh, indigenous artists in Mexico now um, were commissioned to map their places, their communities and their regions um, for the, you know, Spanish colonists, <laughs> but you know they these maps were preserved, and now they're on display at the plant in UT Austin. And um, this idea of looking at a a different point of view and not taking the structures that we're used to for granted or um, seeing them as the the truth or the correct mm -hmm. description, and really paying attention to more of a, a diversity of um voices and input on depicting places and yeah just such a i would love to see that show i'm gonna try and get at the catalog at least um because this local and regional description is so sometimes it can tell you so much about um so much more about a place than a map that's all about commerce for example mm -hmm. trade routes right yeah i mean it's interesting to see how there's a shift from local and regional description um, in you know the early modern period to more of an emergence of of global views and with Mercator people like that creating more of a sense of global geography um, which is you know which is really kind of sets the foundation for Western view of geography as we know it um, yeah. or as we, as you and I both learned it. Um, but yeah, I was, I was really interested to, to learn in my research about choreography, which is, um, a term that, uh, denotes local or regional description often through maps and through text. Um, and to learn that choreography was, was really the dominant mode for a long time. Um, and yeah, I love that you would be exploring local regional description um 
in in your work to kind of bring it back to that granular human point of view. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm interested in, I'm kind of still at the beginning, unfortunately with this, all the research that goes into things and finding uh, places and communities to work with, you know, or, or even topics. Uh, it's a, it's a long time from get to start, get a long time getting from start to finish um, with something, but I, I'm really, I, I think for the next project for sure going to focus on a, a globe of a specific place, like with the watershed globe uh, is a map of a, a region, the Ohio River Valley region, um, but maybe even closer, like zooming in and thinking about, you know, and talking with people about what would be the, the equator in their neighborhood and what would be the poles um, taking on this kind of geographic convention or these agreements that we have mutually as viewers of maps um, and kind of inverting, changing those uh, using their, uh, using the understandings that we have of what an equator means, what a pole mm -hmm. means, um, and that, yeah. applying that differently and making a different set of rules for making a, a map and making a globe. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that takes us back to Ptolemy, who yeah. was the first to kind of, you know, instill this, the ideas that you're talking about of longitude, lat latitude, um, coordinates, like using these kind of mathematical, um, using a system that, you know, he, you know, he or the people who supposedly saw his, his work um, developed, uh, that that doesn't have to be the only way. Um, well, and it's such a beautiful concept. I think one that I kind of romanticize too is, you know, Ptolemy in, I mean, he was associated with the Library of Alexandria and, you know, this big exercise of cataloging and collecting and preserving human history and thinking about it as a mapping as an intellectual exercise um, and as an exercise in writing and looking so much the volume of research to distill down to a single kind of description of place and making the rules for how to standardize that. I mean, I think that's a lot. We are in an era now where the rules are changing and standards for how we get information are changing. And I, I, I'm really excited at even more talking with you now, you know, about what the, what we're doing and when at the place and time where we're doing it and maybe the, the significance of that um, and, and why, why it's important to do now, I guess, is right. what I'm now asking myself through my excitement. <laughs> <laughs> Your excitement is speaking to you and it is asking. <laughs> <laughs> speaking and asking. Yeah. I mean, no, it's a good question. Like why, why is it useful to interrogate map making and the traditions and uh, changes in map making now? Um, yeah, I mean, I think about how people roughly our age or in our generation learned about geography in the first place that we, you know, I remember that um, laminate world map that I like, you know, every every kid was given to fixate on and like, totally memorize that, you know, is sort of a Western view of the orientation of, of the continents. Um, but still it was a tangible object. And, and 
I don't know. Is that important that we that we interacted with geography in such a way and, and do formats, do new formats change our understanding of space and of, of the world? Um, I think it's an open question, um, you know, through Google Maps and, and, you know, using our phones to understand space, uh, you know, it may be more diffuse. Um, so maybe that's good that it's, it's not as fixed. Um, it's definitely accessible, I think. Like, people can, mm -hmm. you don't have to buy a descriptive sound atlas or, you know, even put in, I don't, was there a 16th century mail order catalog that people <laughs> order? One of these maps, I don't the know. Book fair. <laughs> you, one, would, one would go to a book fair, like the Frankfurt Book Fair, oh, yeah. twice a year, and you'd go buy the new version. Wow. Yeah, so I mean, that's not nearly as many steps now. <laughs> right. But I think it's equally important, as we've talked about, like to challenge the authority of the digital formats, just as we would for print formats. And I think, I mean, I'm just so excited about the, the writing and the research that you're doing um, to do that, to really expand the notions we have of, um, you know, this kind of historical continuity or this scope that we're looking at, the ways that people were working to understand the world and maybe the ways that connects with today. Right. That's so nice. Yeah. Well, and conversely, or yeah, in addition, I, I feel like your flexibility as an art, as an artist is, is such an asset that art practice is a great way to interrogate as you say, interrogate the authority of digital formats um, and print formats um, in a really agile way, which is amazing. <laughs>